I, I trust that as we begin, our, our study through Mark has been encouraging for all of you in, in varying ways. Um, we've, we've seen and been able to appreciate so far the, the authority of Jesus, the King. We've seen him do miraculous things as casting out demons. We've seen him um, healing people. We've seen him do incredible, incredible things and demonstrating his authority as king. And so I trust we've walked away from this, not just saying great story, but actually walking away in awe of who Jesus is, in awe of Jesus as our king. And I think an appropriate response for us would be to, to find encouragement in these stories, to find, find encouragement and strength that the same Jesus who did all these wonderful things that we've read about so far in the book of Mark has been and is continuing to do wonderful, incredible things for us each and every day. He's the same Jesus who every day gives us new mercies upon new mercies, gives us grace upon grace and strength in the midst of whatever pain we're dealing with, whatever trials we're dealing with, whatever struggles we're going through, whatever sins we're seeking to kill in our lives, Jesus is the one who is, through the Holy Spirit, empowering us. And it's the same God who did these things in Mark, is the same God who's working in our lives now. And even more than this, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that it is through Jesus and the knowledge of him that we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, so everything we need for our Christian life is wrapped up in knowing who Jesus is. Knowing and understanding the best that we can, Jesus our King. And it's wonderful to know these things, not just because they are past events that speak to present trials, present difficulties, that give us present encouragement, but we also have future hope. It's this, it's this Jesus who provides us with present encouragement, but also looking forward to the fact that one day, for those who claim Christ as their Lord, for those who are Christians, that one day we will be forever with a perfect king in a perfect kingdom for a perfect eternity. That's the hope that we look forward to. And I trust that as we go through Mark, this doesn't just seem like an exercise of reading some stories and hearing some stories and, and walking away saying, okay, those are good stories. Those are really neat things that Jesus does. But we walk away in all of our God and, and anticipating a future that we have forever with this king. If you recall from last week when, when Chris preached, uh, he goes through the parable of the sowers. And in the parable of the sowers, he, he goes through all the different soils, all the different meanings. Jesus even comes along and he explains these things to the disciples that are there with him. And he says this in regards to the, the purpose of the parable. He says, I speak in parables in order that they, may hear, that they may see but not perceive and may hear but not understand. And then Jesus offers this invitation to those who are listening. He says, those who have an ear, let them hear. And I, th I think for us that should be our prayer every time we come to Scripture, and particularly tonight for us, that our prayer should be, those who have ears, let them hear. I think that's, that's my prayer for all of us. That's my prayer, hopefully, for, for all of you. That's your prayer. And, and let's dig into Mark chapter 4 as we pray that together. So let's bow for just a, a quick word of prayer that we have ears to hear. God, you have given us your word. You have given us your scripture. You have told us to have ears to hear. We pray, God, that through your grace and through your strength and through your spirit, we would listen and we would hear and we would be changed by your word. 
In Jesus we pray. Amen. You know, kids tend to do some really unwise, silly, you would say dumb things sometimes. Um, a lot of times it's just because they, they don't really know what to expect by their actions. They, they go through life in the, the early stages of life, and we've all been there, where we, where we operate in a certain way, we do certain things not expecting or not knowing what's actually going to take place. That's why a, a parent will baby-proof a home. They'll put the little covers on the electrical outlet so that a kid doesn't come along and stick a knife in and electrocute themselves. We, we're careful when a young child is climbing up on, a, on the playground because they don't really know what to expect when they're that high because if they fall, they could get hurt. So we put all these things in place because a child does silly things. A child can do dumb things. You know, adults aren't necessarily... Um, divorced from that either. Adults, adults do very stupid things all the time, especially men. If you look up, just Google sometime, why women live longer than men, and you will find some of the most ridiculous things you would ever think to find. You'll see guys jumping off of roofs and shooting themselves out of cannons and just ridiculous things. And for an adult, you would think you shouldn't know better. Your expectations when you shoot yourself out of a cannon, shouldn't be very high. You shouldn't have this high thing when reality is and you slam into the ground and you get hurt. You should expect that. Children don't necessarily have that expectation. Now, I was recalling back to college. I, re- I remember a time where I was over a person's house and we were shooting off fireworks. And these weren't your like garden variety Walmart fireworks. These were probably illegal I don't know where he got them from, but these were like legit fireworks, light up the sky type of fireworks. And um, he, with the fireworks came a a launcher, like just a little tube, you drop the firework in, it shoots off. He didn't like this. He didn't didn't think this was a good enough tube. So he's like, I'm gonna make my own. So he makes his own firework launcher and he he sets it up, all of us are watching, there's a ton, tons of people there. So we have a certain expectation, right? We're going to see fireworks shoot off into the sky and everything light up. Well, when he drops the first firework in and he, he sets it down in and he starts to run away, what he doesn't notice and all of us notice immediately is his, his homemade launcher had actually tipped over and was now pointed directly at a whole line of cars that were parked in his driveway and along the road. So this thing sits there and it fires off. All you hear is boom. And the next thing you know, his brother-in-law's brand new car, brand new white car, half of it's black. The whole passenger side of the car is completely black. I don't know if it was burnt. I don't know if it was dust. I don't know what it was. But what his expectation was didn't match his reality. And, you know, Jesus does this for us in this section where he's going to say, you have certain expectations of the kingdom. And he's talking specifically to the disciples and those followers of him. You have certain expectations of what the kingdom is going to be like, but it's not going to match what reality is. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is the reality that he's going to share is not a burnt car. The reality is something that will leave us in awe, something that leaves his disciples in awe. It leaves them with what we will see as great fear. They, they are awestruck by God because the reality of who he is is so much greater than what their expectations even were. As we look at and consider the first parable that Jesus shares with us, it's in verses 21 through 25. He talks about a lamp and a measure. And we'll read verse 21. He says to them, 
Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? The ESV, I think, does, does somewhat of a disservice for us when it translates this. It says, is a lamp brought in? And the reason for that is because of the, the lamp being brought in. I, th- I think the, the actual grammar here that we should be considering is that the Greek verb to be brought in is actually active. And the lamp is a subject. So when you, when you look at the grammar, especially in the original language, I think it's better to translate this as something is, does the lamp come in in order to be put under a basket or bed? It, it changes the, the way that the, the verse actually means. It somewhat changes how we look at this. Instead of it being, is a lamp brought in? It's, does the lamp come? Does a lamp come in order to be put under a basket or bed? And notice the definite article. This isn't a lamp. The ESV has a lamp. I, the actual definite article is there in Greek. It's the lamp. It's does the lamp come? That's the way it should really be translated. And so I think the wording is clear that when Jesus is coming in here, he says, does the lamp, does the lamp come to be put under a basket? The lamp is representative of ultimately the kingdom and the king. So Jesus. So does Jesus come in order to be hidden. It's essentially what Jesus is asking. Does Jesus come in order to be put under a basket or under a bed and not under a stand? Does the kingdom come in order to be hidden? Jesus has been talking since chapter 1 of Mark about the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. And he will begin to break down here for us. What does the kingdom look like? What does it actually look like to, to be a part of the kingdom? What does the kingdom look like and how will it... How will it be? How will it grow? What is, it, what is a part of it? We've already seen attempts, if you go back to chapter 3, you've already seen attempts in the book of Mark to hide Jesus, to hide Jesus and his influence. You've seen that through religious leaders. You've seen that through his own family, that they come along and they're trying to say, no, 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 let's try to hide Jesus and what his influence is, what he's saying. And we would expect that, wouldn't we? We would expect that from people who don't believe in the gospel. We would expect that from people who don't trust in Jesus. John chapter 3 tells us that those, those who are, that the light has come into the world and those people love darkness rather than light. They don't, they don't want the light of Christ to shine. So they're trying to hide it. And Jesus is saying, does, does Jesus come, does my kingdom come just to be hidden? Does my kingdom come just to be put under a basket or is it to be on a stand? And Jesus, the answers to those questions are fairly straightforward. So the first question, does the kingdom come in order to be hidden? No. Pretty straightforward answer. Does the kingdom come so that it could be put on a stand and provide light? Yes. It's pretty straightforward answers to Jesus' questions. Then you get to verse 22. And I think the ESV here also does us a disservice in the translation, unfortunately, um, because I think it misses the flavors of Jesus' words. So I'm going to ask you to trend with me because this is going to get very technical and I don't want to lose anybody. Um, I think it's better to translate verse 22 here. Instead of, for nothing is hidden in secret except it come to light. I think actually a better translation would be, for nothing is hidden except in order that it may be made manifest. There's two things going on here that I think we need to make sure we're understanding or properly understand the verse. First, Paul, or Paul, yeah, Jesus, Mark, uses a word that denotes purpose. Uh, when, when the Greek is translated and the ESV has it here, it says, for it is hidden except to, that word to, is actually a Greek word of purpose and should better be translated in order that. So there, there's a purpose. So Jesus is basically saying, 
Nothing is hidden unless the purpose of it being hidden is to be revealed. That's essentially what he's saying. There's nothing hidden unless the purpose of hiding it is to one day reveal it. There's a a second thing that we we need to consider here, and that is the fact that that phrase may be made manifest. In in the ESV, it's translated, be made manifest. There's There's a temporal aspect to this. There's a timeliness aspect to this. And so what Jesus is essentially saying is something was once hidden, and now it is no longer hidden. So the, the purpose of, of hiding it was to one day reveal it, and now it was once hidden, and now it is no longer hidden. So there's a, there's a revelation that's happening here in Mark 4. Real time for these people. Real time, they are beginning to see and be exposed to the reality of who Jesus is. They don't understand it fully. We'll see that. We'll see that through the rest of Mark 4. We'll see that through the rest of the book of Mark. They don't understand it fully because there's going to be confusion about who Jesus is, but they're beginning to catch a glimpse of who is this person? Who is this person that's doing these incredible things? What is the kingdom all about? You've seen this progression in Mark as well, haven't we? If you go back to Mark 1, you see a progression where Mark has told the demon, Mark has told the leper, Mark has told numerous people, don't talk about me. Don't tell people what I've been doing. So early on in his ministry, he's, he's setting this stage of keep it hidden. Don't, don't say anything about this. But now it's starting to be revealed. He's getting greater crowds. He's getting more people. He has multitudes following him. And now he's saying, now is the time to start to reveal some things. If we go back to that first point, though, about purpose, I think it's important for us to understand in this verse that there is is a sovereignty, there is a sovereign providential aspect to the kingdom. That this wasn't something that just came about by chance. This wasn't something that just came about by, by accident or happenstance. See, Jesus is talking in a very unique way that what was once hidden, the kingdom, was hidden for a purpose, and is now being revealed for a purpose. There's some intentionality behind what Jesus is doing. This isn't really a foreign concept for us, because if you go back to verse 11 and 12, Jesus gives us a description, and he says that those who, those who I have given the secret of the kingdom, they're beginning to understand. But there are some... Those on the outside, verse 12, they do not understand. So, so this revelation was purposeful. It was intentional. There was a reason behind it. What's interesting to note is that even in this intention and this purpose, those who don't even see the full purpose of the kingdom, don't, those who don't have ears to hear, as Jesus describes, they're still working out the sovereign providential plan of God in all of this. If you think about that, The very people who have confronted Jesus, who have looked to kill Jesus, who will one day destroy Jesus on a cross, are unknowingly fulfilling the very sovereign will of God. The coming of the kingdom, the display of the kingdom, the confrontation to this point, they're not just accidental. Jesus is orchestrating all of these things so that even those who don't understand him, who don't know him, they're still fulfilling everything that he's asking and requiring them to do in his death. 
So there is a divine purpose to Jesus' life. There's a divine purpose to Jesus bringing the, the kingdom at this point. And, and the purpose and the ultimate reason he's here, we see it in Mark chapter 10, he comes to give his life as a ransom for many. That plan of redemption, that plan of restoration of all things, it is being worked out according to his divine purpose. And I think where we, where we take that personally now, so, so we have the understanding of it. There's purpose to the kingdom. He, there's a reason for it. He's, he's hidden for a time and now he's revealed. And I think we come to, okay, so what does that mean for us? So we take this big theological concept and we say this. The reason we, as Christians, are part of the kingdom of God is purposeful, is intentional, and is part of the divine purpose and the divine will of God. We didn't fall into the gospel accidentally. We didn't fall into the gospel because we, we empowered ourselves to find this gospel hidden under a basket. No, it was under the divine, providential, sovereign will of God that through his grace, he brought us into the gospel. He brought us into his kingdom. There's an intentionality to why we're sitting, some of us in this room, and why we're watching some of us at home. There's a reason for that. We didn't come to Christ of our own power. We didn't come to Christ of our own abilities. We have simply been given, as verse 11 says, we've been given the secret to the kingdom. We didn't discover the secret to the kingdom. We were granted that secret. And just as in this verse we see Jesus' purpose and his, his goal, his desire for the, the kingdom of God, how it was once hidden and now revealed, how it's exposed for all to see. He says, if you have ears to hear that, it's because I granted them to you. The reason you are a Christian today is because of Christ. The reason you will be a Christian tomorrow is because of Christ. And it's not by accident. And it's not because we've, we've done some magical thing to do it. It's all because of the divine, sovereign purpose and will and grace of God. And that's where we rest. That's where we rest as Christians. We rest in the sovereign grace of our Lord. And that's why when you come to verse 23, it's, it's a little bit different. He says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. I, I think in the context of this, this is actually not a call to action. This isn't a call to listen. This is simply saying, be encouraged. You, if you have ears to hear this, be encouraged because you are part of this divine, purposeful, intentional kingdom. This is a little bit different than the other times Mark has used this so far. And yet, when we think about Jesus... We think about Jesus in the context here where he's saying, I, I've, I've, I've been revealed, I've exposed who I am a little bit. You're starting to see a little bit of who I am. You don't see everything yet. We very much operate in some senses the same way. While we have been revealed of who Jesus is, there's revelation that has come into our hearts. There's, there's the Holy Spirit who's worked in us and illumined our, our eyes and opened our ears and opened our eyes to the truth of Jesus. We yet still see it kind of like a, kind of like a fuzzy mirror. Like an old mirror that's kind of warped. It's a little foggy. We can't really see a great reflection in it. That's the, that's the picture of the kingdom of God at this point. And for us, it's very similar the same way. You know, I have a, a window in my kitchen 
where the seal's broken on it. It's a double pane window and the seal's broken. And so in between the two panes, it's gotten a little foggy. You, you can still see outside. You can still have an idea of what's happening, but you, you don't really get a full picture. You don't get the full blast of what's happening outside. So if I wanted to, to know what was going on, I could kind of make out what's there, but I can't really tell. The, the kingdom of God is very similar in that when we, we look to Jesus, we, our eyes are open. We can see him. We can enjoy aspects of it, but we can't enjoy him in full. We can't appreciate him in full at this point. One day we will, Mark 14, 62 tells us, and we'll get to that in a number of weeks. Tell, Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. That is our hope. That is our future. It, when, when one day we will see our King in full display, in full glory, there will, be no more, there will be no more fog, there will be no more haze, there will be nothing else covering us from seeing Jesus and God in full display, in full glory. That's the hope that we have. So does the lamp come in order that it might be hidden? The answer is absolutely not. Jesus doesn't come to be hidden. He comes to reveal himself, but he does it intentionally. He does it purposefully. He does it specifically for you and for me according to his divine will, according to his divine purpose, as he wills it. So the first lesson we learned about the kingdom that that Jesus is kind of shattering is that the kingdom its coming, its power, its occupancy is all purposed and planned by God. Mark does a beautiful thing for us in verses 24 and 25. He, he provides a proverb of sorts where he says, those of you who are in this believing kingdom now, those of you who have been granted the secret of the kingdom, he says, the more you dig into this, he says, pay attention to what you hear. The measure you use it, it will be measured to you. What he's saying in a brief synopsis is, the more you dig into this kingdom, the more you'll learn about it. The more you'll know about it. The more you, you listen well, the more you'll receive. The more that you understand and study the person of Jesus, the more you will gain in understanding and studying the person of Jesus. And so for us... The more we spend time meditating on the gospel, the greater the gospel will flow out of our lives, the greater the gospel will become real in our hearts and in our minds. The more we spend time digging into God's word, the more insight we'll gain from it, the more we will be changed by it, the greater desire we will have for it. So I think what Jesus is saying is the more you dig into this, the more you'll get out of it. You'll, you'll be able to gain more and more and more and more. It's like the, the expression, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. As you dig into God's word, you will gain more. I think this is where it, it hits that kind of like that application point for us. So these are all good theological things. The more you, you dig into scripture, the more you get. Here's where it gets real. If we are not spending time in Scripture, if we're not spending time reading His Word, putting the truth of the gospel into our lives, let's not be surprised when our relationships aren't working out, when, when we're losing a love and a care for people, when, when, we are, when we see our love for God 
and our love for our families, our love for our church decreasing, don't be surprised when those things are happening. That shouldn't shock us. It should very much be a wake-up call for us. Like, oh, my love for these people in the church, my love for people outside of the church, my love for God is waning. It's probably because I haven't spent time actually digging into Jesus lately. Don't be surprised when we find ourselves getting angry and irritated, taking offense at the slightest little things, distancing ourselves from other Christians. Because if we're growing in our understanding of Jesus we would see our desire for him, our desire for his church grow. We would find ourselves loving more. We would find ourselves being gracious when it's not easy to be gracious. Seeking to care for other people, even when they don't deserve it. That would be our mindset. That would be our attitude. That would be our behaviors and our actions if we're digging into who Jesus is. We'll get really personal. If we're filling our time and our hearts and our minds just with social media content, arguing online, listening to non-Christian advice about how to handle the problems in the world, we will respond to people with less love and less grace than if we're filling our hearts and we're filling our minds with Scripture. If we think that social media, online content is what will sustain us spiritually, we, we are completely misunderstanding the kingdom of God. Absolutely misunderstanding the kingdom of God. Our growth in Christ, our growth in the kingdom will not just stagnate, it will decrease every time we continue to fill our minds with what the world wants to fill our minds with rather than what scripture wants to fill our minds with. Our eyes and ears have been opened by the power of the gospel and Jesus is saying, dig deeper into that. And I will give you so much more. And the more you dig, I'll give you more. And the more you dig, I'll give you more. And it will be a never-ending, exhaustive search of God. But you know what? It's not going to be, in the end, a torched car. It's going to be the greatest experience we could ever have because we are understanding and learning about the greatest being, the greatest person, the most beautiful thing that has ever existed in this world, the person of Jesus Christ. A simple test for us, if you're saying, well, how, how do I know? When's the last time we were convicted over sin? Genuinely convicted over our sin to say, I need to change something in my life. I need to repent of something. And, and you see, as we grow in our faith and our desires for God grow, God tends to reveal sin that we didn't even realize was there. He tends to show us things in our lives, such as pride and selfishness and anger, in a completely new way. So I would, I would challenge us to check our hearts. When was the last time we experienced conviction of sin, like genuine conviction of sin? And if you'd say, I, I haven't, dig into Jesus and you will. Because he will expose, the word of God will expose for us everything that is in our lives. It, it says in Hebrews 4 that it, it cuts the division of soul and spirit. It gets down into the gritty areas of our lives and exposes those things. Mark does a wonderful thing for us in the, the remainder of this section. Look at the end of verse 24. He says, and still more will be added to you. The verb add, will be added is passive. It's emphasizing the graciousness of God in this activity. So you're, you're digging into God, you're digging into Jesus, and still more will be added. Because a lot of times we think 
When, when we think about growth in Christian life, we think about growth and sanctification, it's oftentimes, well, I have to really empower myself to do this. I need to dig into Jesus and I need to, to fill myself up with good things and then I need to add more on and add more on and dig myself in and, and really empower and strengthen myself to do it. And Jesus is saying, no, when you dig in more, I graciously give you more. I'm giving you the power and the ability to do this. So every time you consume more of me, I will give you more. As you consume more, I will give you more. So we're not alone in this. If you're walking through your Christian life, you feel alone. You're not alone. Jesus, the very one here, is for you. He wants to be there to to have you know him more because he knows that as you know him more, he he is glorified and you are satisfied. And that's where we find ourselves in this Christian life. We dig into Jesus more, we will be more satisfied in him than we ever would have been before. So we are about 30 minutes in, and I've gotten through like four verses. So we're going to have to jump. Um, Didn't think that was going to take that long. 26 through 34, we will tackle this quickly. Um, Two parables. I want to give us the, the idea of, of what we're looking at, and then we will, we will jump into some specifics, hit some application, and then move on. Um, the kingdom idea, as we're transitioning here, the, the kingdom idea is somewhat abstract for us. We don't really understand it. We don't have a king in this country. We, we don't think typically in kingdom terms. You may have heard expressions about growing the kingdom and things like that, but it's really not something that we fully understand. So I'm going to ask us, go into first century Jewish mindset. First century disciple, a first century Jewish person following Jesus, all of their life would have been thinking kingdom. Their life was consumed with kingdom, specifically earthly kingdom. You can go as far back as Abraham and David to see the kingdom of God established in Israel. That's what, that's what the Israelites, that's what the Jews, that's what the disciples were all looking for. When they're following Jesus and they say, we have found the Messiah, they're thinking, Roman oppression is going to be pushed aside and, and this new Messiah is going to usher in a new kingdom. So when you're thinking about that, just put yourself in their place. What needs to happen with the kingdom? There needs to be plans. It needs to be built. There needs to be strategy. We need to get an army together. We're going to have to fight off oppressors. We're going to have to do all of these things. So there's a need to plan and organize all of this. And, and as one of the disciples, one of the followers of Jesus, you get to be part of that. You get to be integral to everything that's happening. And it's into this that, that Jesus speaks. Because what Jesus is going to get at in, in verses 26 through 29 and then 30 through 34, he's going to answer two different questions for us. He's going to answer first the question of how does the kingdom grow? And the second question he's going to ask is how big does the kingdom get? And he's speaking into this context of first century Israel, first century disciples, first century Jews, who they had this idea in mind. We're following this man from Nazareth. He speaks a little odd. He says some weird things, but he's shown himself to have incredible powers. One day we are going to We are going to take over Rome, kick all of Rome out. We're going to have our kingdom because of this Messiah and what he's doing. And you think through the the path of their life, and we're going to get through it in the rest of the book of Mark. Think through the path of their life. Twelve men, 
following Jesus. One of them comes along and betrays him. Their leader, the Messiah, is killed. Even when they go to defend him in the garden, Jesus even says to them, put your swords away. This, this isn't part of my kingdom. So the, all of their misconceptions, their expectations for the kingdom are not becoming a reality. Even you jump way forward to Acts chapter 1, Jesus is ascending into heaven. And even there they say, are you establishing your kingdom now? Even then they're thinking earthly, they're thinking temporal, they're thinking material kingdom. So that when the angel comes and he says to them, why are you still looking up in the sky? Think about what these 11 men have right now. They've got a dead Messiah who raised again but is no longer on the earth. They have a story. They don't have an army. They don't have anything powerful. They're, they're not going to overthrow an entire, an entire empire in Rome. They have a story. And so Jesus is saying, you, you think your plan, all of your planning, all of your strategizing, all of your organizing, what was it for? And these disciples are probably thinking, we've done all of this stuff to plan and organize and prepare for this. Your plan now is 11 men in a story? That's not a, that's not a kingdom. And so Jesus is speaking directly into that idea to say, the kingdom isn't what you think it is. The kingdom, the kingdom doesn't grow like you think it grows. So he tells a parable in, in verse 26 through 29, and the parable is pretty simple. Man plants a seed, man goes to sleep, the seed grows, the plant's harvested. Simple story. We don't really need to know much by way of how to farm and agriculture to understand that's the process of growing plants. Man plants, goes to sleep, it grows, get the harvest. Pretty simple. But I think when you, when you dig into, and this is good practice in any biblical exploration, whenever you're digging into Scripture, whenever you're studying Scripture, when you come across what appears to be fairly simple stories... Look for what seems to be unnecessary detail. Find, find out what's, what's that thing that just stands out. Like, what's odd about this? Like, why would you emphasize this? Because I think Mark and, and Jesus, they, they emphasize something very specific for us. Notice verse 27. It says, so the man has, has scattered seed. He's planted in the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. So the man's contribution to the growth of this crop is what? He sleeps. That's his contribution to this. He, he sleeps night after night after night. The, so, so what Jesus is basically saying is the kingdom of God is going to grow. It's going to be planted. And it will grow not by the power of the one planting the seed. That's not what's going to grow the kingdom. Verses 30 through 34, we'll cover that real quick, then we'll jump to some application. He describes the growth and the size of the kingdom here when he says that the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed. Smallest of, smallest of seeds grows into a giant plant. A couple things of commentary. Jesus isn't trying to be like agriculturally, horticulturally accurate here. There's smaller seeds than the mustard seed. There's larger plants than the mustard plant. But what, he, what he's getting at ultimately is the kingdom of God is going to start very small. 
going to be a very small thing, but then there's going to be explosive growth, unexpected explosive growth. So what Jesus is doing is saying, how, how big does the kingdom grow? Jesus' answer, it's like when a small seed becomes a giant plant. How does the kingdom grow? It's like when somebody plants a seed, goes to sleep, and then the crops show up. Couple points for us for how the kingdom grows. We already know and we, we understand the seed is the word of God. We've seen that prior, the parable of the sower, the seed is the word of God. Verse 28 The earth produces by itself. The earth produces by itself. So, how does this seed grow? The earth produces by itself. The word by itself is actually one word in Greek it's automate, it means automatic. It's automatically. So, so the earth produces this automatically. It happens. Growth doesn't happen because the planter has some innate power. He doesn't, he doesn't dig into the ground and germinate the seed and cause it to grow. There's not some power that the planter has. He simply plants the seed. He simply gives the word. And then there is growth. He knows not how. So the, the, the seed being the word of God, the gospel... The kingdom grows not because there's power in the person delivering the message of the gospel. The kingdom grows because there's power in the message of the gospel. Not in the one delivering the message of the gospel. Quick reminder what the kingdom is. The kingdom simply God's reign, God's rule as evidenced in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking at. That's the understanding of the kingdom. So Mark wants us to see, he's saying, Jesus is king. Jesus has come establishing his kingdom. And so now when he's talking about growth, he's talking about people coming into the kingdom. He's talking about numerical growth of human beings who are coming from not in the kingdom to now in the kingdom. And we understand that by, I think, verse 29's description where it talks about harvest. Harvest, generally understood, is to be an eschatological thing, an, an end times thing, a final judgment where there's good crop and there's bad crop and there's a harvest that takes place and the good crop goes to God for eternity, bad crop goes to the fire for eternity. That's the general understanding of, of harvest. We don't have time to get into the, the details of that. So what Jesus wants us to see and understand is that human growth of the kingdom is people brought into relationship with God and it happens not by the power of the one delivering the message, but by the message itself, by the word itself. And sometimes we miss this point. Here's the application part. Sometimes we miss this. Because we, we have a heart to see people come to Christ. We have a heart to see people believe the gospel, come into the people of God, join the kingdom of God. And so we, just like the man in the parable, we go and we spread the word of God. We share the seed. We plant that seed. But we don't always see a response. And so our response to that lack of response is to work really hard to get someone to believe. So, so we share the gospel, we share the word, and they're not, people aren't interested, and then we just continue to share, we continue to give the gospel, we continue to not see growth potentially, but, but we oftentimes get frustrated. We oftentimes get disappointed. We get discouraged. Even think of the context of the church, not just in terms of evangelism and seeing new people brought into the kingdom, but, but think of growth in the church. 
Because there is kingdom growth that happens just by us growing in our faith. It's not just numerical growth. There's growth in our faith that attributes to growth in the kingdom. And so you, you have a heart for someone and you're working with someone to grow in their faith. You're, you're trying to give them the word and, and you're met by what is rather discouraging at times. You're met by no change. You're met by no belief on the person that, that doesn't believe the gospel and you're met by no change by the person that claims they do believe the gospel. And so we get discouraged. And so we, we seek to then exert ourselves. Well, I have, to, I have to give more of myself. I have to try harder. I have to do more. We beat ourselves up at times too to say, it's my fault these people aren't growing. It's my fault that this person isn't coming to Christ. It's my fault that, that somebody isn't changing from darkness into light. It's my fault that there's no apparent growth that's happening in this person's walk. So we lose heart, we get discouraged, and we blame ourselves. And we, we challenge ourselves. You say, I just need to do more to grow the kingdom. But in reality, Jesus is saying, it's not how it works. Your expectation of how this works, that's not reality. He doesn't need us building and planning. He doesn't need us burning out for Jesus. He doesn't need us burning out for him in discouragement and frustration. He simply says, plant the seed. He simply says, go give people the word. Go give people the word. And as you give people the word, we're going to look at this in a minute, Isaiah 55, it will not return to me empty. There are two instruments that Jesus gives us in terms of kingdom growth. One is the word. The second is prayer. So you want to see people change from darkness to light. You want to see people come into the gospel. Pray, give the gospel, pray more. It's all we can do. You want to see people grow from immature Christian who can only sustain milk and you want them growing to where they can now eat the meat of the word. Pray, give them the gospel, and pray more. That's the only, that's the only thing we can do. And so discouragement over anything other than that is misplaced understanding of how the gospel actually works, how the kingdom actually grows. The interesting thing when you come to this section is that, that Mark and Jesus make clear the man sleeps over and over and over and over. Every night he just sleeps and eventually it grows. So we pray, we give the gospel, we pray more, and then we sleep. That's how the kingdom grows. It reminds me of Psalm 127 where the psalmist writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builder labors in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. The man planting that seed to see his crop grow, he sleeps. Our same response to how does the kingdom grow should be give the word and then rest in the fact that the word itself has power. Virtually any action movie you see, there's typically... A, an explosion of some point. There, there's an explosion that happens sometime in the, in the action movie. You'll, you'll see someone coming along to maybe it's a bridge or a building and they're setting charges, they're, they're setting dynamite or C4, whatever it is they're using. They're setting those charges and they're, they're exploding something. We can think of giving the gospel with sharing the word in a very similar fashion. 
every time you share the word with someone, it's like setting a charge for an explosion. So every time it's another charge, it's another charge, it's another charge. And we continue to set those. We continue to share that word. And so over time, this person has been given the gospel, given the gospel over and over and over again. And one day, boom, it's going to be an explosion of the power of the gospel and they will come into the kingdom of God. Not because we empowered it, not because we did it, but because he did it, Jesus, through the power of his word. The caveat to all of that is, in a movie, something explodes and there's destruction. When the power of the gospel comes through and you see it explode, it brings life, it brings newness, it brings union with Christ, it brings justification and all the different components of the gospel into someone's life. So Jesus is wanting us to see that kingdom growth comes by the power of the word. And it's important for us to recognize and realize we aren't the ones who change people. We aren't the ones who save people. God changes, God saves, the word changes, and the word saves, not us. And, and that is so freeing, hopefully for all of us. It's, it's freeing to think, I'm not responsible for the changes that someone makes or doesn't make. I'm responsible for one thing, give the word and let the word work. The same truth that changes other people, the word changes others, is the same truth that we have as well. We want to change. If we want to change, if we want to see growth in our spiritual lives, it happens through one way, and that's through prayer and the word. As you dig into those things, we've already seen change will happen, growth will happen, and we'll be desiring more and more of God. So the second lesson we learned about the kingdom and what changes our expectations is that growth is by God's power and not our own. So the, the kingdom was purposeful and it was purposeful and it's happening and it's happening because of the power of the word of God. And we can rest in the word. I, I mentioned Isaiah 55. I think, I think it's the next slide. Yep. Um, I will not read the whole thing here, but I will say this. As the rain and snow come from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so is my word that goes out of my mouth. The word of God fulfills the purpose of God. That's Isaiah 55. That's what it's talking about. The word of God comes and it fulfills the purpose of God. And we may not see the result of that. We may not see that return to God the return of the word. We may not see it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. We may not even see it in our lifetime. But it will happen. His, his word doesn't go out without a purpose, without an intention. And it will always come back fulfilling the exact purpose and the exact intention that God desired for it. You know, there are countless stories of people who have heard the gospel and, and walked away from that encounter with the gospel only to, to one day at some point in the future believe the gospel. One story I'll share that's personal for me, and actually he's in the room, is my dad. I didn't know he was going to be here, so sorry for putting you on the spot in front of everyone. When my dad was an older teenager, I think 17 or so, he can correct anything wrong in this story that I get. 17 or so, teenager in Philadelphia, hanging out in a park with his friends. Somebody came up to him and his friends 
with a desire to share the gospel. That man was ridiculed, and if I have the story right, was assaulted as well. But something he shared with that group of guys in Philadelphia that nobody else probably would have wanted to share the gospel with at that point was, Jesus loves you. I love you, and Jesus loves you. And for some reason, that stuck in my dad's head. So he he went home and he read the Bible and the power of the Word of God came into his heart, into his life, and he was transformed by the gospel. Because a man walked into a park with a group of teenagers and had one simple message, I love you and Jesus loves you too. Shared the truth of the gospel and I have no idea. He's never, from my recollection, never met my dad since then. I don't think he knows him. That that man has no idea. He may have walked out of that park completely deflated, thinking this was worthless, this was meaningless. And yet, the gospel took root, the word was planted, it took root, and it sprung life in my dad's life. That's the power of the word of God. That's the power of the gospel. And I like to think that 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 man had a sense of faith. He had a sense of trust that this word was going to work. And so that's why he was out there sharing this. So I think a question for us is, where does our faith rest to see people change? Are we frantically trying to use our strengths and our abilities to get people to change? Burning ourselves out with discouragement and when we don't see change, or do we place our faith in the word of God to change people? And and that's marked by, in this parable, sleep. It's marked by rest. It's marked by contentment. It's not marked by frantic, frantic anxiety over where someone is in their life. We'll finish quickly, verses 35 to 41. Because I think this idea of sleep and faith mesh together in this final section. Um, We're not going to take a ton of time here. Your discussion guide is all about verses 35 to 41, so dig into that in your GCCs. Recap of the story, Jesus and his disciples are traveling across the Sea of Galilee. There's a giant storm that comes. Um, there's a, the, the way it's positioned here is great storm. It's actually like a mega storm um, is the, the original word. It's a mega storm. So this great storm comes, and all of the disciples, including some who are fishermen, out on these boats, out on these seas all the time, are scared to death. They think they're going to die, and Jesus is sleeping. They come to him and they frantically say, do you care that we're dying? And and Jesus comes and he says, peace be still. And then he rebukes them for their lack of faith. So Jesus is sleeping in the midst of all of this craziness going on. And I think we see a couple things related to Jesus is sleeping and faith. Because because they are correlated. There's, There's a direct connection here between faith and sleep. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to sleep in the midst of craziness, in the midst of storms, because I have a faith that God is going to take care of me through this. So he's, he's, example, he's exampling faith. He's evidencing faith. He's providing for us an example of, here's what faith looks like in the midst of craziness. But notice the response of the disciples. The response of the disciples isn't, oh, okay, Jesus has had faith, so now we should have faith. Jesus exampled this for us, and now we should follow his example. No, their, their response to Jesus doing all of this says that they, they feared with a great fear. 
they were in awe of who Jesus was. Because not only is Jesus exampling faith for us, I don't even know if exampling is a word, but I'm using it. Not only is, is he showing us an example of faith, but he's saying, I'm not only the example, I'm the object of that faith. The one that you're looking at that's calming this storm, the one that you're in awe of right now, I am the one who you should put your faith in. Don't just follow my example. Put your faith in me. I am the king. I have authority. I can tell demons. I can tell lepers. I can tell disease. I can tell winds. I can tell nature. All to be silent. You want your faith to be in something? Put it in me. And not because I'm growing you a kingdom that will take over all of Rome and kick out your oppressors. Put your faith in me because I am the one who will satisfy your soul. I am the one who will grant peace and reconciliation with a God who, who is full of wrath, pouring it out on all those who are sinners. Put your faith in me. And it's wonderful news for us as well because the story that those 11 disciples had, the story of Jesus, his death, his life, death, and resurrection, it's not an impotent story. It's not simply a story that, that has the power to even change sinners into saints that has the power to change immature and immature. The story that they were given is a person. John chapter 1, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. Hebrews chapter 1, God previously spoke through his prophets, but now he has spoken to us how? By his son. The very word of God that we've been talking about, the very power of the gospel is not simply a story, it's a person. And it's a person that invites us into relationship with him and says, put your faith in me. Put your faith in me for your salvation. Put your faith in me for your growth in your Christian life. So our faith doesn't rest in an abstract concept of story or word, but in the, contra- on the concrete objectivity of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. He became flesh for you and for me. This is our story. This is the word, this is our power, and we can praise it and we can proclaim it until we die or until Christ returns. That's the message of the book of Mark. Jesus is king. Put your faith in that king as revealed in scripture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, for his authority, for his power. Thank you that he is king Thank you that we not only see the example of Jesus, but we understand the objectivity of who he is as king, as Lord of our lives. Pray that we would have ears to hear and continue to hear and continue to learn through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.